we will all probably have that music stuck in our head before the series is over, won't we? <laughs> Um, just to, to back up really quick, uh, that last announcement that Cameron made about Upwards, take it from somebody who has come into this community with uh, fresh eyes and, and uh, just meeting a lot of people out in the community uh, and getting to tell them where it is that I, I work and pastor and what church that I'm a part of. Everybody that I've talked to that has not been a part of this church has brought up in some way, shape, or form the fact that their son or daughter, their grandson, their niece, their nephew has played basketball or done cheerleading for upwards, and they've, they've been here. And so this is a wonderful ministry opportunity for us. And so I just encourage you, if you can in any way, shape, or form be a part of upwards, um, uh, please do it. We as a church are, are known in the community for that, and that's uh, a great opportunity for us. Uh, this morning, obviously, I'm, again, not Pastor Chip. Pastor Chip is uh, away speaking at a revival. I told him he missed the wrong Sunday because Iowa upset Michigan yesterday, and he could have, after a rough year, he finally would have been able to really celebrate. But, uh, <clears throat> but I'm here doing it for him as a fellow Hawkeye fan. So if you're a big blue fan, I apologize to you this morning. Uh, also, uh, kind of bear with me this morning. I have a bit of a cold, and I asked my wife this morning as I was leaving, should I take medicine for it, or do you think that'll you know, mess me up too much? She said, well, I'd rather not hear you like cough and sneeze and all that kind of stuff. So I went and took the medicine. Uh, so uh, bear with me this morning. If I, if I get lost, somebody just come up and take me off. We'll be okay. Uh, <laughs> This morning, we are going to continue our, our uh, Oikos series. And if you were with us last week, you heard Pastor Chip share with us what Oikos means. It's an extended household. And, and uh, basically, uh, the idea is that there are 8 to 15 people that we interact with on a daily basis. And they are, come from four different categories. They're a biological uh, or our family. They are vocational, those who we work with, those who we uh, maybe coworkers, bosses, employees, those different types of things are geographical. There are neighbors. It's where we live. Uh, those, uh, maybe it's the, even the person you run into at the gas station you go to every morning to get the paper or something like that. Um, and then it's the uh, volational, the, the choice activities or hobbies. Maybe the person you golf with on a regular basis or, or go to uh, the candle store with or whatever it is you do for your hobby. Um, it's those people that are a part of your 8 to 15 people. And uh, thinking in terms of... <clears throat> thinking in terms of Christians and Christ followers and how we are to share Jesus with the world around us, sometimes it can be a very daunting task to look at the world, to see what's going on in the world today, and to think, how in the world can I make a difference or an impact for the kingdom? And the good news is we're not, we are, are not called individually to save the world. Thank goodness, right? But we do have the opportunity to share Jesus with those 8 to 15 people that are a part of our extended family. Uh, I want to bring back up again a passage that Pastor Chip shared last week, Mark 5:19. Um, this is right after Jesus has driven out uh, the demons from uh, the man after he pulled up on the shore and sent them into the, pig, the, the herd of pigs and they ran into the, the ocean. This man was so grateful that Jesus, of what Jesus had done for him that he wanted to pack his bags and leave and follow Jesus uh, personally. But instead, Jesus says this. Uh, Jesus did not let him, but said, Go to your home, to your own people, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Sometimes when we come to know Jesus, um, 
it almost has this effect where we want to, we are so on fire and excited. We want to jump in. We want to study the word. We want to, we want to be at church every Sunday. And it's almost like we do the opposite of what we probably should be doing. And that's going out and telling people all that Jesus has done for us. Sometimes, sometimes we, we try to, uh, be here for every event, which is a great thing. Sometimes we try to be a part of a bunch of discipleship groups, and we try to, to meet with individuals and grow, and that's all good and should happen. But sometimes that, that can mean that we pull in and that we leave the world around us that needs to hear about Jesus. I had a professor in college who, who described this type of scenario as, as, um, as a, using the imagery of a house. He said that people would uh, come upon the house and there would be somebody at the door pulling them into the house. And once they would get in the house, they would then start to explore the house. And again, the house is our, our spiritual faith and relationship with Jesus. And they would go and some of them would go and find all the nooks and crannies, coat closets, attics, basements. They would go into the inside of the house and they would never come back out again. But then some people would make their way back to the door and pull in other people. And so that's kind of the idea that we're working with with this oikos principle that uh, we introduced last week. And this is so important because we looked at a bunch of percentages last week uh, of how people come to know Jesus. Uh, and let's uh, go ahead and throw that up there so that you guys can see it. If you look all of these all of these different things we do now as, as a pastor who plans a lot of these things, uh, this is kind of discouraging. Um, but special, uh, like a special need or a walk-in, pastoral visit, visitation, Sunday school, um, evangelistic crusade, uh, church programming, all of that only nets you about 10% of the ways that people come to know Jesus. The big one is relationships, friendships, and relatives. That's our oikos. And 75 to 90% of people come to know Jesus through that. And I'm sure if we all just sat here and thought about our own journeys, we could go back to a specific person or group of people that place us in the seats we are at this morning and with the relationship uh, that we have with God this morning. I can think back to my own grandparents and my parents, um, certain friends I had in my youth group that kept me going when I was ready to give up and kept me going when I was starting to stray away. Those are my oikos. Those are the people that I'm surrounded with. And sometimes it doesn't have to be just, just someone who's really close to you that you have a relationship with. Sometimes it's the person that you interact with the most that maybe you care about the least. The, again, the person at the gas station that we talked about, the person that goes unnoticed, but you interact with them every day and they see you every day and they talk to you every day. We have the opportunity, whether, whether we have placed them in our oikos or not, we have the opportunity to share Jesus with them. And last week we talked about, uh, we talked about uh, being it, accepting the fact that as Pastor Chip shared with us, we are Christ's ambassadors. And accepting that as our identity. When we go out into the world, Pastor Chip shared it, we don't see people as a certain nationality. We don't see them as uh, an Ohio State Buckeye fan or a Michigan Wolverine fan. We see them as does this person know Jesus or are they lost? And let, uh, I would like us to, uh, to look at 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. This is kind of our, our home for the series. I'm going to read it for you. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he was committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So last week, Chip did talk about being Uh, accepting that as our identity. And today we're going to take this a step further. We're going to look at verse 17 specifically. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Uh, N.T. Wright, a a very famous theologian who spends a lot of time uh, with the New Testament, has, has called verse 17 the greatest summary of what Christianity is all about, replacing the old with the new. Um, in our house, we, we tend to watch HGTV a lot. And there's a show called Love It or List It, which I'm sure a lot of you know. It's Chip and Joanna Gaines. And they go in, they pick the worst house in the best neighborhood for these, these people. And they, they go in and just completely flip it, gut it, redo the outside, redo the inside. Um, and then they have this, this moment at the end of the show. And it always frustrates me because they always cut to commercial right before they pull it back. But they, they bring the, the couple that bought this, this awful house that needed completely re, uh, redone. And they bring this couple to in front of the house, but they've got these two pieces of canvas pushed together that show what the house looked like. And then they have the big reveal. They pull those two canvases away and they see the new creation. They see the old and immediately go to the new. It's not, it's, not a different, it's not a different structure. They didn't change most of the time. They don't change the footprint of the house. They don't change the studs. They don't, but they've completely made it something new. And today we're going to talk about living it. This is the process where we have accepted, we have invited Jesus to come live in our hearts. We've accepted that we are Christ's ambassadors. And our next step is to live it out, to be that new creation uh, that we talk about in, uh, in verse 17. Francis of Assisi, an, an Italian friar in the early 1200s, is uh, credited for saying this, witness at all times, <clears throat> and if necessary, use words. We are constantly being watched. We are watched by a lot of people. We are watched by our oikos, those who are closest to us, our extended household and friends and relatives. But we're also being watched by a lot of other people as we go throughout our day. Um, And what we do conveys a message. And uh, when we have Jesus come inside of us and change us, people notice change. Uh, and this morning specifically, we're going to talk about the fact that our oikos, those who are closest to us, those who have a front seat to all the drama that happens in our life, to all the moments, both positive and negative that go on in our life, they see that. And that makes an impact and a difference on them. And so we as Christians are called to live out to the best of our ability, our faith. Um, this morning, uh, I'm going to kind of go out of order the way I planned here, but, uh, Who's a fan of superheroes? 
a few of you. We just did a superhero series with the, the teens this last month, and, and I really enjoyed it. And I was never really big into reading comics when I was little. Uh, but as I've grown older uh, and, and the movies have all come out, I've watched them all. Uh, but there, I, I, I'm of the firm opinion that there is one superhero that is head and shoulders above the rest. And that is Superman, because Superman is like all of the other superheroes combined into one person, right? Um, and and the, the thing, though, with Superman and the story of Superman and all that is there is something that he doesn't have that's, that's the best, and that is the best villain. Batman owns the best villain, and the best villain is the Joker. And we have a picture of the Joker there this morning. And if you're afraid of clowns or anything, I apologize. But I just had to put that in there. Um, but this is, this is uh, Heath Ledger playing the Joker in The, uh, the Dark Knight. And the, uh, the interesting thing about the character of the Joker, he was developed and created in 1940. And he was first released in the very first issue of the Batman comic. And when they created him, he was a psychopath. And he was very uh, devious uh, and awful character. Uh, in the movie The Dark Knight, they describe him as somebody who just wants to see the world burn. And he's very evil. In fact, he was so evil when they created him, they were going to eliminate him in the very first issue. But the editor of the, of the comic book thought that they needed to save him because he was such an evil character. They could use him down the road, and ultimately he becomes the arch enemy of Batman. But um, around the 50s, they realized that the character, the evilness of the Joker, was actually scaring children and having a negative impact on children. So they even asked the creators of the Joker to dial him back just a little bit. And then all of a sudden, we see what we saw if you ever watched the, the Batman uh, um, TV show in the, in the 60s about when, you know, rappelling up the wall and all that kind of stuff. The Joker in that, in that is more of a prankster and he's just more of a trickster than he is evil. <clears throat> and, uh, this is, this is all very interesting as we look into it because Heath Ledger, the actor that plays the Joker in this, in this movie, uh, he is what we call a method actor. A method actor studies a character, studies the history of the character so much that they actually try to become the character that they're playing on the film or in the play. And Heath Ledger was this way. And uh, when he was deciding whether or not he would take this part, he got a phone call from Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson played the Joker in the 1989 Batman film, and he uh, actually begged Heath Ledger not to take this part. And he told Heath Ledger, if you take this part, and you dive into the history of this character, and you try to become this character, it will mess you up. He, um, he, he told him that he had to receive help and counseling when he played the Joker, and he just did not want to see that happen to Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger, though, saw this as the part of a lifetime, and so he took it. And if you're, in, if you're aware of everything that's happened uh, with this film, it ultimately cost him his life. Um, towards the end of filming the movie, those who were closest to Heath Ledger uh, told people that he wasn't sleeping at night, that he, they, he would have weird conversations with them, still in character. He couldn't leave the Joker at the set and leave and go home. He became this evil, sadistic person. And ultimately, after the film was done and completed, uh, he overdosed because he couldn't deal with this character that he had become. And if we take a moment, and as kind of crazy as this example is, and 
replace the character of the Joker with Jesus. And we replaced Heath Ledger with ourself. And we replaced those assistants with our oikos. We actually find the relationship and the faith that we should play out with those around us. They said of Heath Ledger, they didn't know where he stopped and the Joker began. And as a follower of Jesus, I hope people can say someday that, you know what, I don't know where Ken stops and Jesus starts. When we go out and we live our faith out, that's what it should be like. People should not be able to tell the difference between Ken and Jesus. That's our goal. That's our hope. And we're going to fall short. This isn't a, this, we are not after perfect behavior. Thankfully, we're not after perfect behavior. Jesus didn't come and die on a cross for perfect behavior. He knew we were going to fall. He knew we were going to fail. And he provided a way for us by, by coming back to life and having continue, continuous access with the Father to continually ask for forgiveness. And this morning, that's so important because as we live out our faith in front of our oikos, we're going to fail and we're going to fall and we're going to fall down. And we need to have, we need to have the courage to stand up and say, you know what, I messed up. Jesus has forgiven me for that and I'm going to move on. When we can admit and own our own mistakes, um, people see that around us. And then we also, as a part of, because we have an oikos, but we're also a part of other people's oikos. When we see them fail and fall, we need to respond with that same grace, that same love, that same mercy that Jesus has shown this morning, uh, we are going to turn to Luke 19, and we're going to look at a story. Um, this is one of, the, one of the most famous stories in the New Testament. We talk about it in children's church quite a bit. Uh, it's the story of Zacchaeus. As we get there, I'm going, to, I'm going to read it for you. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig to see, tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In this passage, we see the, uh, the oikos principle play itself out. Um, if we take a closer look at, at the scenario and the situation we have here, uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem uh, to do uh, the, the greatest act of love that we've ever seen. And on his way to Jerusalem, he has to go through the city of Jericho. Now, we all may know Jericho from the stories that we also hear in Children's Church from the Old Testament about Joshua and the Israelites marching around the wall and the walls falling down. Uh, if you've seen the VeggieTales version, there's French peas involved and everything. Um, but we know we are very familiar with that story. <clears throat> well, they've rebuilt Jericho. And not only have they rebuilt Jericho, uh, it's become one of the places to live in, in, this, in this ancient world. Um, <clears throat> it's about six miles away from the Dead Sea, and there's rivers that flow into it. And with an, um, 
with aqueducts and an, an advanced irrigation system for the time, the city is really an oasis in the middle of the desert. Uh, there were gardens everywhere. Uh, they built a new palace. Um, Herod, uh, during his time as a ruler, built an amphitheater there. So it was a place to travel to. Uh, it was kind of a vacation spot. There were four ways to go in and out of the city in every direction. They all kind of met in the city center. Uh, Jericho was a very nice and well-to-do place to live. And <clears throat> also in this city that's well-off and well-to-do, people want to be there. A lot of tourism, a lot of opportunities for, for people to make money in the city. You would figure that the person who had to collect the tax also would be doing well for themselves. Now, this person was the most hated person uh, simply, well, for two reasons. First off, uh, they were an employee of Rome. They were basically a turncoat on their own people. Uh, when Rome came and took over, uh, they required um, a taxes and they employed locals to collect that taxes for them. And so the, the tax collectors of the time were looked upon as one of the lowest people in their society because of the job that they performed and did. And they were also looked down on because they were some of the most dishonest people in the world at that time. Rome required a tax. And so that tax collector they would, that they would put in charge of collecting that taxes uh, was required to give a certain set amount to Rome uh, each year. And so they could collect that and then to make payment or to pay the employees that they have working for them, they would allow the tax collectors to take more than that set amount that Rome required. And the thing is, they never capped that amount that they could take from people. And every time somebody came to give taxes to Rome, the tax collector could, on a whim, tell them how much they were going to have to give. And so you can imagine um, in, in a larger city, one person is not going to be able to collect all of this taxes. So he then employs other people in the community to help him collect taxes. And all of a sudden he goes from just being the tax collector to the chief tax collector. It's one of the first pyramid schemes we have in the Bible. And so they are, they are, um, they are employing, sending these people out. And the same thing, it just, it's the same cycle in a smaller setting. This person uh, is required to pay uh, to collect taxes for the chief tax collector and then on top of that for Rome and then they need to pay themselves so they take more out. And so as, as you add more tax collectors into the system, it just gets more and more corrupt and the people get more and more frustrated. And we meet Zacchaeus this morning and Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector of Jericho. And we see um, that the, the, the people there don't like Zacchaeus. It's not directly said, but the fact that Jesus is coming and he can't make his way to the front of the crowd. He's not one of the, the well-respected people. And later on, uh, they call him, the people muttering call him a sinner. This is what they believe and think about Zacchaeus. And I have no doubt that they watched Zacchaeus very closely. And they watched him get that job originally from Rome. And they watched his probably humble living situation start to get uh, start to get better and he start to get more wealth and him start to employ more servants and his house be getting larger and larger and, and, and his estate getting larger and larger and they all know it's off of their own back. He's not really earning anything, he's just taking. And so this is what the people feel about Zacchaeus and we, we have no doubt that Zacchaeus was watched closely. 
by the people. And so Zacchaeus wants to meet Jesus. And so he, he, he hears he's coming through. And, and like we said, there's, a, there's, a, there's pretty much four different ways to go through Jericho. And it, depending on what direction you're going, um, if he's headed to Jerusalem, Zacchaeus knew which way he had to go. And so because he couldn't see Jesus where he actually was at the time, he runs ahead on the route and he climbs up a tree. And he waits for Jesus to come along, having no thought in his head that Jesus, when he got there, would actually stop, call him out by name, and ask him to come down. Because Jesus was going to go to his house. Jesus was going to go visit his oikos. And so Jesus goes with Zacchaeus to his house. And of course, the crowd is mad, as I believe I probably would be too. If I, if I believed that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus was going to come to overthrow this government, this evil, oppressive government that we had, and Jesus comes and then goes to stay with the worst one, the person that's employed by this awful government, I would have to say, what in the world is going on? What is he doing? Were we right about him? But Jesus goes and stays with Zacchaeus. And we see the impact that only Jesus can have on a person. We're not told of the record of the conversations they had around the dinner table. We're not told of the conversations that they, they may have shared where, where Jesus talked about what was required of Zacchaeus to be a follower of him. But we see the results. We see that Zacchaeus stands up and declares that he is going to give half of his possessions, half of his wealth. Obviously, Zacchaeus values his wealth. If he's a tax collector, he values his wealth. And he values it more so than the opinions of others because he has let the whole city of Jericho hate him to collect this money. And so Jesus comes into Zacchaeus' life and all of a sudden there's a complete change. He gives half of that wealth that he held so closely to the poor. And then he goes a step further and he says, everybody that I've wronged, I will give back. I will pay back fourfold. This is how we can see that there's change there. I don't know if you were here with us when we went through our series on Colossians this summer, but I had, one, uh, I had the opportunity to speak one of those Sunday mornings. And we talked about um, uh, chapter three and the change that happens uh, inside once Jesus comes into your life. Uh, we're going to look at verses 12 through 14 this morning. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if uh, any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. When we see Zacchaeus respond, we see love and compassion for everybody in that city. Not just, not, just the, not just the poor and the people that are obviously in need, but everybody that he's tricked. And most of the time, those people didn't know how badly he tricked them. Most of the time, the people didn't know what Rome required. And they didn't know if Zacchaeus just asked for a dime more or if he asked for $100 more. They were unaware of that. And we see Zacchaeus completely turn around in his life. And Jesus then says, today salvation has come to this house. 
this oikos, because this man too is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. We're not told, and I'm, I'm kind of bummed that we're not told what happens after Jesus leaves Jericho and what happens with Zacchaeus. But can you imagine the impact that Zacchaeus has? I told you just a second ago that everybody watched him. Everybody was mad at him. Everybody knew that he was getting wealthy off of their own back. Can you imagine the impact of Jesus coming in and changing Zacchaeus' life? Everybody that's watching him there's perhaps no bigger miracle that they witnessed Jesus perform than saving Zacchaeus. Because then salvation came to, to Zacchaeus' house. His family, his friends all had a front row seat to see Zacchaeus live out his faith. And this morning, that's what we are called to do. And unfortunately, just as profound of an impact of us of us coming to know Jesus and having everybody see that change us, the opposite can also be true. If we come to know Jesus and it changes nothing about our life, those who have that front row seat will see that too. Last week, um, Chip quoted or uh, uh, brought up the, uh, the intro to the DC Talk song, What If I Stumble?, the intro to that song says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. We have a responsibility as Christ followers to live out our faith. Because whether or not we, we are trying to, to go out and be a witness, and I hope you are, whether or not we're fully aware of all that, people watch. And when they see us go out into the world and act with bitterness and anger and hate, who wants, who wants to be a part of that? They can do that with, without Jesus. It's our job to go out and live with kindness and compassion and gentleness and love. And when we do that, when we live that out, those who are around us, those who are closest to us see that. But also, beyond our, our own oikos, our own extended household, so does the world around us. This morning, I'm, I'm, I'm going to close with this, this story. When I was a new youth pastor, um, I was still a college student. I was a part of an intern program through Southern Nazarene University. And uh, I got to go to uh, Norman First Church then of the Nazarene. It's now Norman Community Church of the Nazarene. And uh, I got to work with, with Pastor Brent Hardesty and a great staff there. And I was brought in as the youth pastor. And my first Sunday there, we had five kids. And, um, and I think actually one was a guest. And so I kind of thought to myself, man, I, I came from a large youth group when I was, in, uh, as a, when I was a student myself. And I was like, this is, this is going to be challenging. This is going to be different. I don't know if I've ever, um, I've ever worked with a group this small. And so um, 
this was, this was in August, and so I, I worked with this group, and, and it fluctuated and kind of went up and down. And, uh, but by the time the end of the year came about, the end of the school year, uh, I was getting ready to go home for the summer, and the youth group was still about four or five. And when I uh, came back the next year and started working with the teens, two kids promoted up from the children's department. Two sixth graders came into the youth group, and... Um, Dylan was one of the one of the students. Dylan, um, I don't think he realized he knew it, but Dylan knew the Oikos system well. Dylan invited everybody he knew to come to church, and in a matter of literally two months, we went from five to forty. And uh, you can imagine the shock uh, on the face of the youth pastor, who all of a sudden was was coming to grips with working with five, and then all of a sudden, in the course of just a few months, had 40. And you can imagine all the logistics issues we had with that. Our youth room uh, was literally like the size of Ben and Sarah's office over here. We didn't fit in that. We had to come out to the sanctuary. It was great. But I watched Dylan closely. And the reason I knew this all stemmed from Dylan is I would ask the other kids that were coming in, oh, you know, like, who, who did you come with tonight? And they'd always tell me, Dylan. They came with Dylan. And uh, from that, um, I, I kind of thought, well, you know, like after a little while, we'll probably lose a few. And Dylan kept inviting more people. We may have lost some, but Dylan kept inviting more people. His oikos was more than 8 to 15 uh, because I met all of them. And he brought them as a junior high student. He brought them as a high school student. The entire time I was there, Dylan was bringing people. And uh, then all of a sudden, just like the, the intro video that we watched, Dil the people at Dylan brought, brought people. And... Um, I was meeting these kids, and, and then Deontay came. Deontay was a student uh, who had no clue who Jesus was. He came on the invitation of Dylan. And one night in small groups, Deontay met Jesus. And the next night, Deontay brought four of his friends. And for whatever reason, that night, their small group leader wasn't there. We actually met, and the, the sanctuary at that church was much like ours here is today. And we were kind of all spread out throughout the sanctuary. And I took, I took Deontay and Deontay's four friends up here on this, on this part of the stage. And we were going through the small group questions. And I just felt like I needed to ask, hey, does, any, does anyone else here in this group... Uh, know Jesus personally? Does anybody in this group want to know Jesus personally? And Deontay stood up and looked at his friends and he said, guys, you need to know Jesus. So we're going to be quiet and pray. And like, I was shocked. Deontay knew Jesus for like two weeks. And Deontay made a difference in four kids' lives that night. And we prayed and there's four, four, and I don't, I, since I've left Norman, I've lost track with a lot of them. And I, I, I hope and pray that they're still the way they were that night. When we live out our faith, we can affect so many people around us. We don't always have to be like Deontay or Dylan and express it with our words. People watch our actions. We are Christ's ambassadors, and he is making his plea on our behalf. And I hope that when we go out into the world, 
We do not do what the, the preacher in the beginning of that DC Talk song talked about. I hope that what we say with our lips is matched by our actions because our oikos is watching. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this time that we've had today. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to look into your word and to hear from you. And dear God, I just pray that uh, you would put a, a new sense of urgency on us, that we would live our life um, for you, and that those who are watching would come to know you greater because they see you working in us. Dear God, I remember the, the night that you came into my own life and the difference that that made. And I just pray that uh, for those of us who have, who have known you for a long time, that we'd still be able to remember that moment that you came in and made a difference. Dear God, for those who are here this morning that maybe haven't made that, that decision yet, dear God, draw closer to them. Put people in their oikos that can share you with them. Dear God, I, I just pray that, uh, uh, that we as a church, as a body of believers, uh, would make a difference in Napoleon because you are living through us. You are making your plea through us to Napoleon. Dear God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity that we've had to worship you. Uh, may you be with us as we go from this place today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.